Welcome to the GenesisChurch.tv podcast with Scott Hunter. I'm your host, lead pastor of Genesis, Scott Hunter. Today's a rebroadcast of week five of our message series, Unshaken, the book of Daniel. I pray this brings you hope and encouragement as we encounter and wage against similar battles that Daniel faced. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I just want to present to you um, a little bit deeper into this dive of eschatology. So eschatology is simple, meaning we're going to study the end times, the end of the world, the last days. But there's a lot more to it today than like timelines. See, because I think there's a bigger thing that we need to focus on. I said two weeks ago, it's really not about figuring out, well, who's the Antichrist? Or where is he going to be from? And, or, or even like, when is the rapture going to happen? Like those things, great and all. But the issue is not that. The issue is, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? That's what matters. So we've got to have our A game on, right? So we are here for such a time as this. There's a reason why you were born for this decade, for this period, right? You are your agents of the apocalypse. That sounds weird, but I'm telling you, it's your job. It's my job that as we live in the final days, because we're in them, we've all been in them since the ascension of Jesus Christ, the, the final days have been ushered in. And so you are part of God's plan. You were put here on this earth so that you and I might usher in the mentality, the heart that God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your goal, my goal, is to live a life for Jesus Christ and to seek and save the lost. That's why we're here, to worship the Lord and to bring everybody into the same kind of relationship that we have with him. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9 today. It's kind of strange. It does like a flip-flop in the middle, and I'll take you through that, but Go ahead and turn there, and I'm going to set the scene for Daniel 9.1, okay? So while you're turning to chapter 9, I'm going to kind of give you the background for some of this stuff. In the first year, it says, Darius the Mede, son of Xerxes, the time is 539 B.C., and there's a new sheriff in town. Now, you've heard of the name Darius. You've already met him if you read the book of Daniel. He's the one that put Daniel in the lion's den, right? So at this point, Daniel has taken more than 80 laps around the earth. The sun has been spinning on him, and he's gone a long distance, right? But we talked about going the long distance, long obedience in the same direction. But just because you've been going a long distance does not mean that you still don't have gas in the tank. Because I do believe that if you are still here with breath in your lungs, you still have a call and a purpose on your life. I don't care if you're 101 years old. You never age out of the kingdom of God. Do you understand? You are never past your spiritual prime. People need your wisdom. Without you, we are lost. So Daniel is well into his 80s. But guess what? He's still learning. He's still studying. He's definitely still praying and he's still prophesying. And he is still dreaming. How do we know this? Look at verse 2. Daniel 9.2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years years. All right, so a couple of questions that I've been kind of going through with you over the last few weeks is really what is God up to during this season of our lives? Like what is God doing in the life of the church, in the life of this nation? Right, so I'm pretty sure God is waking us up. There's a lot that's happened now, even from the reactions to the Supreme Court decisions that just came in, God has shaken some things up, right? Shaken up some false securities, Uh, false narratives, false idols, false ideologies. I think God's 
activating the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives to this new level. It is, it is what I'm praying for. It's a believing for the supernatural demonstration of God's love and God's power being poured out all over this earth. I think God is calling a lot of us, if you are with me and then you're, you're, you're grounded and you're in the word of God and you're in relationship with Jesus, he's calling you to like a radical repentance. I believe that God is reprioritizing prayer in a lot of our lives. And I think God still has a remnant of people on this earth, like you and me, who are supposed to go, do, serve, love relentlessly, asking nothing in return, but bringing people to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, in Acts 2, 4 through 7, or 47, they're talking about how the church is multiplying. And it says, God added to the church daily. God's not going to add to the church daily if all we do is this once a day throughout the week. It's not going to work that way. Or for some of us, once a month. <laughs> it's about finding a daily rhythm. I know you're probably sick of hearing me saying, like, find the rhythm of God in your life. But it's true. You have to find a way that God is incorporated through your life, every day of your life, as you breathe in, breathe out, do regular old life. Where's Jesus at? Because I think we need to understand, if you don't get it by now, this is not about religion. You are not here to stand up, sit down, do a little hootie hootie do, and be good. And be like, oh, that's good. I feel religious. Who cares if you feel religious? God doesn't require that or want that. He wants relationship. He wants your life. He wants to be a part of your moving and your being and your breathing and your doing he wants to be part of who you are, in and out all the time. And so I finally think that God is doing the same kind of thing at the beginning of the church, where he begins to decentralize the church. What does that mean? It's not just that, you know, there's going to be a mega church over here and a mega church over there, but no, I think that God's people are kind of just everywhere right now, and he's sending everyone everywhere out, that it's not good enough just to come and meet inside of a building once a week, but he wants you to be the mouthpiece at your job, at your school, on the board of whatever board that you're on, in the government, he's positioning you for a good work. And I, I really do believe that you are the priesthood of believers. When I keep saying you're the mouthpiece of God, that's scripture. That means God is putting his word in your mouth so that you might go in into dark places and bring light. You are the prophets. He's sending you to go and to reach, to seek and save the lost, and maybe for some of you, just to become inviters again and to show up with somebody attached to you and say, hey, let me bring you to breakfast. I'm going to bring you to church. Or hey, better yet, come here and you can buy breakfast because we got an awesome cook. And I think there's so much going on in the earth that the church needs to explode. This is the greatest thing that God has got going on in the earth his church, his people. Why not share that? What I've been studying with, through this Old Testament prophet named Daniel keeps coming up with this question to me. Is, it's like, how do we cultivate this prophetic thing, this prophetic imagination? How do we do this prophetic gifting thing to a, an, entire, an entirely different level? Because Moses said, I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets. And so that includes you. In Judaism, prophet gifting was not reserved for the few, the proud, the marines, right? It was, 
was for everyone. See, the end goal of your spiritual maturity is that maturity equals prophecy. What does the gift of prophecy mean for us? 1 Corinthians 14.3, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouraging, and their comfort. How amazing would it be if you were so in tune with God that every single one of you, everywhere we went, were the people that spoke life and spoke strength and encouragement and comfort to people that do not know him. Do you know how much that would flip the entire world upside down? So this is where I'm about to go old school on you. We'll talk about eschatology at the end, but I want to talk about two practices that will help you cultivate that mentality of what prophetic speaking looks like, prophetic gifting looks like in your daily life right now. There are two habits that Daniel models, okay? So one of it is explicit, meaning that it's straight up, leaves no room for interpretation, confusion, doubt, it's there. The other one is implicit, meaning it is implied. So number one, explicit scripture, point blank says, Daniel prayed three times a day, like clockwork, right? And we see that in verse three. But in verse 2, it's saying, Daniel understood from the sacred books according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah. Pause. Time out. I don't read anything into Scripture. I, I, I don't add anything to it. I don't take anything away from it. We straight up teach the Bible here. Period. That's a no-no. I'm not doing it ever. Scripture interprets Scripture. So number two, though, is implicit. I have no doubt that Daniel had a daily habit of reading God's word all the time, getting into God's word. Judaism said there are very few things that are more important than the study of the Torah. The Jews, to the study of the Torah, means like if you spent one day studying God's word, that was more than a thousand sacrifices. So the Jews' sacrifices cover their sin. Now do you understand how much that outweighs that? So Judaism there are four levels of studying God's word. And I kind of want to take you through that today. I'm going to go a little nerd on you for a little bit. And I promise you this will all make sense in a second and how applicable it is to our lives. So let's go through four levels of what it means to do what Daniel did and study. The first one is Peshat. Everybody say Peshat. Right? It's the plain reading of scripture. That's it. It's a funny face. You read it. Right? Great place to start. Get the Bible app. No one at this day and age can say, well, I don't have access to a Bible. Yes, you do, and you have every translation under the sun in the palm of your hand for free. It's called YouVersion, Y-O-U, version. You can get it online. You can get it a downloadable app. That's what I do. And it will literally read to you if you can't sit still for more than 30 seconds. You can, it'll follow you around, right? And their NIV version has a British dude that sounds like 007. It sounds like Sean Connery, and he will read the scriptures to you. It's fantastic. All right? But the level two, though, goes a little bit deeper. It's remez. Everybody say remez. It literally means a hint. It's like if you take something and you shove it underneath a microscope, you see, like, so much more than you ever thought, right? Rabbis in, in Jewish history would say that Scripture has 70 faces and 600,000 meanings. The way to reveal those facts is to pull out what we call a concordance. You just go back to the original language of the Hebrew and the Greek, right? So that means that you study it. I do this to you all the time. I'm like, well, this word in the Greek means, it's because here's why that matters. 
So many times you're like, well, what does that mean? I don't. Our context of our words have changed over time, right? Think about how many times you've said a word in your past that either A, you can no longer say, or B, means completely something else, totally different, right? Michael Jackson screwed it all up with the good is now bad and bad is now good, right? So you can see how that works, right? And so when I say to you, what does that originally mean? Good news, you don't have to go to seminary to find that out. You go to biblehub.com or biblegateway.com and you do a simple word study. That's it. It's a great way to remez the scripture. A great way to study that way, put it under a microscope, find out what it originally means. Third level is Doresh. Everybody say Doresh. So I would compare this one to a Google search, right? It's like pulling up something, a word, and then all of a sudden you see all these links. What Doresh means is you're studying the scripture where you're connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament because you do understand that it's just one big story, right? So the Old Testament, everything is pointing towards the cross, towards the coming Messiah. Then there's that 400 year of silence. Jesus explodes on the scene. You have the Gospels, and then everything else points back to the cross. And then the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it's all his story. It's all his love story to you. Every single thing about it, you will find Christ interwoven into everything. And so it's a great way to connect the dots. Let scripture interpret scripture. That is Duresh. Finally, level four is sowed. I know it looks like sud, but everybody say sowed. You can't skip stage four, and you can't jump straight to it. Second Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and correctly handles the word of truth, meaning that you have taken the time to figure out what the word of God actually means, and then you say it versus just interpreting it incorrectly. See, this is where you need the quickening of the spirit. What does that mean? It's like the awakening, the enlightening, making make sense of things that don't make sense. That's the word of God being shown to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this is when the Spirit of God takes a scripture that maybe has never making, made sense to you in your entire life, and then all of a sudden, it comes into plain sight, and you're like, oh, okay, that's what that means. Where do you think that comes from? See, the good news is the exact Spirit that caused the men of God to pin those scriptures word for word is the exact same God whose Spirit lives on the inside of you who is working on the other side of the Bible to make sense to you the things that were written long ago. It is a great God idea that he's working on both sides of the equation. Who comes up with that stuff other than God? That's amazing. That's a really good God idea, right? So the question is, is have, have you gotten into God's word? Because when you do, here's what happens. God's word gets on the inside of you, and two good things happen. Number one is this, Psalm 119.105. By your words... I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. Old school, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Meaning, the word of God shows you what is right and what is wrong. What is unrighteous and what is holy. What is going to lead you to, to great and honorable and wonderful things and other stuff that will lead to self-destruction. That's what God's word does. You need clarity on what to do, who to be. 
You'll find it in God's word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It teaches you what is right and wrong and what is the thing to choose. God's word over people's opinion, it keeps your life pure. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because love before sowed is where we've got to get. It's where we've got to, to get to as a people of God. It takes head knowledge of what you read and what you can understand in the natural and put it deep down in your heart so that it now makes spiritual sense to you and then something's gonna click. And when it begins to click, it begins to form your conscious and your worldview and you begin to rely on the promises of scripture even though your eyes deceive you and say, yeah, that's not ever possible, but God's word tells you that it's true, then you know that you know that you know deep down on the side of you that nothing that anybody can tell you is going to thwart what God's promises over your life. And you begin to rely on that and the word begins to give you conviction and your morality and a spiritual backbone. That's how you get from the mindset to the heart set. That's how you go and you become prophetic in this process. You hear God at an entirely different kind of level. And when he speaks, you hear it and you respond to it. And I just pray that over you now, that every single person sitting in this room hearing this message, that you will begin to cultivate the prophetic gifting in Jesus' name, that you might respond to the quickening, the, the unction of the Spirit of God, and that you will speak to people for their strengthening, for their encouragement, and for their comfort. Go be a light in this dark, dark world. What does that have to do with Daniel? Everything. Look at verse 3. It's a rather rare occurrence when one writer of Scripture references another writer of Scripture, the person that did that the most, was the king of kings, Jesus Christ. But here in the Old Testament, they're recognizing something has happened. See, Daniel has studied God's word. He knows God's word. He's been seeing things happen in the earth, and he's been praying for God to intervene. He's been doing that all through the lens of God's word. Now, Daniel has lots of dreams, and, and they're very diverse. They've all kind of come from different places, some from praying and fasting, being alone, some from like angels showing up and saying, hey, guess what? It's about to happen. And, and then there's other ones where like there's a weird hand writing on the side of a wall. Like there's been all kinds of unique things. But today is very specific and very unique. See, in this instance, the revelation that being making something clear that was not clear before, I would suggest came from Daniel of studying Peshat, Ramez, Doresh, of studying studying and studying the word of God. And then the result is sowed, where the Holy Spirit begins to speak to Daniel as he is studying Jeremiah chapter 29. But this is where we get this messed up theology of the city says, there's this other prophet and, and is a false prophet, Hananiah, says that the Jews are only going to be in captivity for two years, but Daniel is studying this and sees that it's 70 and so Jeremiah says to them, stay. You're going to be here for a while. Plant your gardens. Build your houses. Don't rent the city. Own this city. Put down some roots because you're going to make a difference 70 years from now. Let me just say this. Do you not realize that wherever you are, because you are God's child, wherever you go, you bless that place. 
you change the atmosphere, you do the miraculous, you love those who everyone hates, and you do great and mighty things that you don't even realize that you're doing by just being present. He says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. What city? Well, they're in Babylon because they're exiled there. They're not building a church there. They're not just building there to be there. God's people show up, and because of that, they're going to bless the third and the fourth and the fifth generation, just like God's going to use you because it's never just about you. It's never just about me. God's going to take whatever you're doing, this church, and change the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. So as Daniel studies Jeremiah, and he's been engrossed in study, the Spirit of God, sowed, shows up in him and begins to ignite Daniel's spirit. And what is his reaction? Look at verse 3. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. What do you do when you get a vision from God that awakens you, that awakens his word in you, when you get that God idea and that light bulb comes on that God says, I want you to do this? I think you do what Daniel does. I, we have to. I do it. You seek God's face by prayer and petition. In my experience, the more you pray, the bigger dream that God's going to drop in your lap. And the bigger a dream that gets dropped in your lap, the more that you got to pray. Because there ain't no way that you're going to be able to do it on your own, right? That's that's what a God-sized dream does for you and for me. It keeps us radically dependent on God to be able to pull it off. The next 17 verses is the longest scripture reference of someone just praying a prayer. It's the longest prayer in the scripture. And I wish I had time to unpack it all, but let me sum it up by saying this. The thing that Daniel prays is a prayer of mercy. It's a prayer for justice. Go home and read it, and you'll see that you'll find radical dependence on God and radical repentance unto God. Daniel repents for the entire nation and confesses their sin. He declares God's character, who he is, and he declares, this is what's happening in Israel, Lord. This is the predicament. And then he prays, Lord, get in the middle of the mess. Show up in the middle of our mess. That needs to be the prayer of our, of our nation right now. Lord, show up in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the broken. Lord, we repent. God, intervene. As I study Daniel, the Lord begins to stir my spirit. And I'm sensing some things that, that we as a church, as Genesis, or as the church, the, all the people of God need to be doing right now in this moment in time. Number one, that God is calling us to a prayer season. He just is. Do you remember when Jesus throws down at the temple and gets really ticked off? He starts flipping tables, and you're like, does he have a bad day? Did he eat some, like, rotten fish? Like, what's up with Jesus? No, he walked in, and he saw that God's house was not being used for what God's house was intended for. That it was supposed to be a house of prayer, and he said, you're making it a den of thieves, meaning that people were, were selling, and, and, and they're basically selling uh, birds and and sacrifices and it was costing the people nothing but just to go pay and do it and it meant nothing to them and so that broke the heart of god almighty and he began to flip tables and he says you know what we're going to make this thing go back to what it's supposed to be a house of prayer for everybody that's why he got so riled up 
In the South, we say riled up. Because if it goes back to its original intent, then God's house can be a place of prayer that turns into healing. When you begin to pray, this becomes a house of dreams and a house of miracles <laughs> and a house of reconciliation, meaning that anybody and everybody can find their way back to God. That's what Daniel does. See, Daniel could escape, and I guess, and run away and go back to the temple and actually be in the temple and pray. It's only 900 miles away by foot, whatever, right? But instead, Daniel literally turns his house into a house of prayer. He climbs the stairs. He opens the windows toward Jerusalem. He kneels at his bed. He stands up, and he prays three times a day. That's powerful. I wish we had that same kind of attitude and that same kind of schedule with the Lord. And I think we need to get there. And I think part of the thing that we also have to do is number two, God is calling us to contend in this season. That means to press in. It's, it's not praying wimpy prayers that are just in and out and done. God is saying to you, you've got to pray through to get a breakthrough. You're never going to be a prayer warrior if you don't start the battle. Listen, I have no issue with praying short prayers. Like, I pray them all day long. I have no prayer, especially playing short prayers before meals. Let's be good stewards. Let's thank the Lord. But joker. But the food is hot, we eat and shorten up them prayers. Stop praying intercession prayers before I get to my hot ham. All right, listen. But there are moments and there are going to be seasons that you've got to contend. That means you've got to battle. That means you've got to fight. That means you've got to compete. Where you rise up by kneeling down. Moments where we double down and we double over. Daniel said like this in, in Psalm 35, 10. It says, my whole being will exclaim, who is like you, Lord? Can we pray a prayer like that? Where it's like your whole being is consumed in prayer? I don't think you have to pray for hours upon hours. I don't think you've got to pray all fancy-like in King James Version. I think God just needs to hear from you, and you just need to pray your guts out. That's what Daniel says here in 9.19. He says, Lord, listen. That's bold. Lord, forgive. Even bolder. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Get in here, intervene, because your city and your people bear your name. The prayer that you need to pray needs to be on purpose. Because prayer is the difference between you fighting all by yourself or fighting for God, and God showing up and fighting for you. Some of you are so tired. Some of you are so worn out. Some of you are like, I'm ready to throw in the towel. It's because you're fighting in your own strength. And God is saying to you, why don't you just get on your knees and seek me, and you'll find me with your whole heart. And I will go to battle for you. Contend. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You were not meant to do this in your own strength. God, I pray that the Lord will show up in your life and do a breakthrough today for what you're facing. But that breakthrough is not going to come if you don't seek him. The battle belongs to the Lord, not you. In the exact same Psalm, Psalm 35, 23, here's what it says. says, awake and arise to my defense. Contend for me, my God, my Lord. Lord, fight for me. 
long before you woke up this morning, before you will go to bed tonight, the Spirit of God is praying over you and groans and moans and things that you don't even understand. And Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. Two out of three of the Holy Trinity is praying over you right now, all the time. Let's switch gears, because here's what happens. Daniel is studying, Daniel is praying, and then all of a sudden, because he is, when he says, contend for me, boom, guess who shows up? An archangel. Pretty rad. Look at verse 21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight, meaning he saw him flying. <laughs> About the time of eating sacrifice, he instructed me and said, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. 23, as soon as you began to pray, as soon as you begin to open up your mouth, the Lord will begin to move. You don't open up your mouth, you don't see the movement of God. A word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Here's what the vision is. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for all the wickedness that you have done, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Pause at verse 24, right? So the angel says 70 weeks or 77, it adds up to 490 years, whatever that looks like. Honestly, I don't really even understand, and, and neither do theologians, like if this literal or is this figurative in this moment, but here's what doesn't matter. The amount of years in this moment, because seven is the year of completion, and when the Lord says he's done, he's done. One way or the other, God is saying, my discipline has run its course, captivity over, and Daniel prophesied then the rebuilding of the temple. What happens after? We get to those last two verses, and I'm going to close out with this. We're going to move pretty fast. And this is like a hyperlink to Revelation. So he's been praying and seeking the Lord's face and, and studying Jeremiah and what is to come, and, and God reveals some, some pretty amazing things. Look at verse 26. After 62 sevens, the anointed one, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be rejected. Do you understand that he's prophesying this 500 years before he will ever show up? Before Jesus' birth? He will be put to death and will have nothing. And this is where the switch-up happens. After Jesus ascends to heaven, the end times are activated. You're living in them. We've been living in them since Jesus Christ ascended to the Father after he died and rose again. Here's where it says, the people of the ruler who will come, the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolation have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. In the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So, Let's look at this, this statement, this abomination that causes uh, desolation. You're going to see it in Daniel. You're going to see it in Revelation. There's a few times that it'll pop up both places. So I'm going to unpack it for you a little bit 
about that prophecy. In eschatology, meaning the study of the last days, there's this concept of dual fulfillment. Dual, as in two or more, multiple times. Many prophecies fulfilled, okay? But in one statement. So the way that we think of dual fulfillment is like you see a mountain range. Like if you've ever driven and you like kind of see the mountains, if you've gone to Tennessee or you've been out west, right? And you, you see this like huge mountain, but then like you turn the corner and like, oh, wait a minute, there was another mountain behind it. Oh, and oh, look, there's a stream. And oh, oh look, there's a valley. And, oh, there's more mountains. So you see something up front, but then you see that it, oh, it's greater than what you thought. That's what's happening here. A lot of scholars believe that this first fulfillment of this prophecy happened 168 B.C., when the little horn that's referenced in Daniel 7 is Antioch Epiphanes, and he invades Jerusalem. He plunders the temple. He takes everything, okay, like he, including the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Like, I don't know how everyone was not struck dead. I have no idea. But he takes this up, and he sets up a temple for Zeus. And then he sacrifices a pig on the altar, which is so unclean and, like, don't do that, right, if you're a Jew. Super bad. But then he makes the Jews eat the unclean parts, and he outlaws circumcision, and he outlaws the reading of the Torah, and it's an abomination that causes desolation. It's something horrible that causes everything to unravel. And if you know your Jewish history, this is where the Maccabean revolt happens. Now fast forward to the Olivet Discourse. That's where Jesus is sitting up on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to talk about the end times, Right? So if you've never heard of that, that's what that means. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus is referring to Daniel. And you see the phrase again, abomination that causes desolation. Something horrific that causes things to fall apart and things to go evil and more evil and eviler. I don't even know what that statement is. Eviler? Evil. Really, really, really bad. All right. Jesus says, pay attention. Pay attention when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. And they're like, Mm, didn't we already see that? Right? But that was the first fulfillment. It's going to happen all over again. It happens in 70 AD when Rome lays siege to Jerusalem. Guess what they do? They set up an idol to Zeus. Guess what they do? They sacrifice sheep, oxen, and pigs on the altar. Can you say deja vu? But I know this all sounds like history, but friends, guess what? History tends to repeat itself. Be watching for the desolation of the temple. Revelation 13, that little horn of Daniel 7, 8, once again shows up. As the world powers rise, that little horn, the Antichrist, performs an abomination that causes desolation. Revelation 13, 14 through 15 speaks of an image of a beast that is built. And it will look like him. And men will be required, women will be required, children will be required to worship this idol. If they do not, they will die. It's going to be a dreadful time for the church. Those who refuse to worship the beast will be killed. Those who refuse the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to buy anything, sell anything, get groceries, nothing. Energy, nothing. But those who remain faithful to God will no longer be able to worship him in the company of believers. We take for granted so badly what we have right now. And the holy place is going to be made desolate by this monstrous abomination of the Antichrist. The Antichrist who makes himself God on this earth literally builds a statue and then gives it power to be able to breathe. 
and the statue, Scripture says, will be able to see who is not worshiping him and will kill them. No thanks. Don't want to be there. But fear not. What we know for sure is that Revelation eleven fifteen is the ultimate truth. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. No one is greater than our God. No one is greater than Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. And I honestly believe like the big next plot twist that this world might see is this, this inciting incident on earth. Very well may be the rapture of God's church. And I, I've been praying a lot lately, just this statement, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, because the world is getting rougher, uglier, full of deceit. The truth has been thrown out the window, and the lies have become truth, and murder is everywhere, and evil is rampant. But I will not fear, and neither should you if you are a child of God. All we pray is, Lord, just come quickly before this destruction goes to a whole new level. I don't want to see that stuff. Because I believe in 1 Thessalonians because it is the word of God and it is the truth of God's word. And God's word does not change and it cannot be changed. And it is rock solid. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. With the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That phrase, caught up, is where we get the word rapture from. It happens between the sixth and the seventh seal and revelation. So I believe, therefore, in pre-wrath, rapture, regardless, even if we have to endure we will be with the Lord forever. And there will be nothing like it. What you see on this earth is not even one iota of the goodness and the fun and the excitement and the wonder and the beauty and the awe of your future. So therefore, encourage one another with these words. We'll talk more about this coming year. I'm going to do a whole series called Split the sky. But the bottom line is, don't you dare lose faith in the end of the story. Don't you dare live in fear because we know who wins in the end. We already know who has won. And his victory is our victory. This life is not all that there is. So just relax. God has got this. God has got you. May his kingdom come. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All you and I have to do is just be ready. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. This has been another podcast of GenesisChurch.tv with Scott Hunter, lead pastor of Genesis Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Tune in each Sunday at 929 or 1101 on YouTube, Vimeo, Facebook, 
and live.genesischurch.tv or visit us in person at 4070 Mission Road here in Tallahassee. Catch us for weekly messages and midweek interviews and encouragement here on the genesischurch.tv podcast.